2: Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to The Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creativity. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Even if you only glance at the work of LA-based painter Andy Dixon, it doesn't come as a shock that his first aesthetic-based love was color. When he chose socks as a child, the stripes on each would contrast. When his brothers were playing video games, he was looking at the ways the colors interacted in the graphics. The fact that by the age of 12 he was starting a music career, moving from metal to punk rock, touring during summer break, and getting flack from other students for negging their school on TV also makes sense. Andy is every bit the colorful punk, asking, or perhaps answering the question, what does a Renaissance painting look like under a pop culture lens? His work frequently references classical art, but in doing so, opens up a conversation about luxury and pokes fun at the notion that while art is soul-stirring and life-affirming, it also needs to carry a price tag. A few years ago, in a true demonstration of pop culture stars aligning, Versace reached out, over Instagram DM no less, to have Andy create an installation for Salone del Mobile, the furniture fair in Milan. This led to a fashion collaboration for Spring 2020, a true meeting of the minds between two creative forces that are fearless with color, historical references, and general over-the-topness. Along his journey from high school outsider to art world insider, Andy has made piece with an important concept you don't need to be niche to be noteworthy. You don't need to make inexplicable art to make great art. You can make things people enjoy and involve them in a dialogue without selling out, whatever that really means. In fact, it might be braver not to always expect rejection, but to open yourself up to acceptance. I caught up with Andy as he was preparing to open his latest exhibit Masterpieces, which is on view until April 18th at Over the Influence in Los Angeles. We talked about the terrible physical effects of not quitting your day job the real definition of meta and the perks of letting go of branding yourself an outcast to join the great conversation. I hope our chat adds a pop of color to your day. Please enjoy.
1: Hey, how's it going?
2: Good. How are you?
1: Good.
2: Congrats on a great 24 hours by the looks of it on Instagram. Oh,
1: thanks. Yeah, we're just sort of doing like, uh, just having some friends by. The show is still like officially not open, but it's also totally booked to go see it. So it's my only chance to get my friends to see it is to sneak in early while we're still hanging it.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. That's so great. Thank you. Well, greetings from your hometown. When was the last time you were in Vancouver?
1: Uh, I think it was for my dad's 70th birthday, which was, well... Uh, A while ago, I guess with COVID, it kind of sliced a year out of all of our lives. So I guess it's been a couple of years.
2: Pre-pandemic. Yeah. The old world. Yeah. So crazy. What do you miss about Canada and what do you not miss? I miss healthcare.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not being worried that I'm going to like, you know, hurt my foot and have to pay $10,000.
2: The bane of the creative experience in in (laughs) the U.S., right?
1: Yeah, Exactly. I miss the air. I mean, every time I come back and I get off the plane and YVR, do you take in that first lung full of like piney alpine air? It is, it's unbeatable.
2: It's so unique, isn't it? It really is. When I was living in New York, I I remember coming back to Vancouver to visit my family and it would be like I hadn't
1: breathed. Exactly.
2: six months or whatever
1: yeah i was like whoa have i had oxygen in my body (laughs) a year
2: (laughs) your body's like i don't know how to compute
1: this yeah so that's those i mean i miss my friends my family of course i'm you know i had a great network there i was there for so long it's kind of like i don't know vancouver is that that funny thing where it's like the city is that perfect size where it's a city but it's also kind of a small town in another way. And if you're there long enough, you sort of know everybody, you know, the person who, you know, the server at the restaurant, and then you go into the art store and you know, everybody there, Yeah. you know, the guy that makes your stretchers, you know, you know, you walk down the street, you meet it, you see everybody, you know, it's like very Gilmore Girls or something. (laughs)
2: Stars
1: (laughs) hollow. I miss that. (laughs) I miss, I miss knowing everybody, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's cool to be in L.A. where you're a little more anonymous and, uh, you know, I'm getting a, a pretty strong network of friends here. But it's, it's never going to be like that because Vancouver is just has that smallness to it, which is yeah or something. You know? Totally.
2: Totally. So according to Wikipedia, you're the son of two accountants. <laughs> is that correct? No,
1: it's actually <laughs> not that right. I should uh, sign up for Wikipedia. You know what? I actually had to sign up for a wiki account to change my own birthday because it was wrong on my wiki page.
2: Who wrote it wrong?
1: Uh, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, it was the wrong year. It said I was born in 1980, not 1979. And then when I tried to change it, it was like, cite a reference to prove this. And I was like, but I'm me. I don't know. (laughs) You're like, can I send you my passport? How about that? (laughs) So my dad is an accountant, full CGA, has been since before I was born. And my late mother was like his, I guess, assistant sort of secretary, so bookkeeper for a while. So it's a bit of a misnomer. She was not an accountant. She just did like bookkeeping for him sometimes.
2: Family business.
1: Family business. That's That's nice. Over the family business, unfortunately. I have two brothers and none of us want to be accountants, so I don't know (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> do they do cross border i feel like that would have been really helpful as you were figuring to come to the states i'm like trying to figure all that out right now and it's like such a
1: hassle oh really yeah, yeah. i have a t- I, there's a i have a immigration lawyer that i talked to yeah she's perfect amazing. if you want i'll send you her contact she's incredible thanks man
2: i appreciate yeah. it i might need that at some point <laughs> <laughs> so did you love making art as a kid or was was music the first spark that's
1: a good question I, it was both i mean i think if I really went back all the way to like, you know, toddler six, seven to ten kind of thing, definitely visual art. I was like obsessed with drawing. I, I don't know any it was any more than any other kid. I, I I think all kids do that. I I don't know if I'm romanticizing it now right. because of how it right. turned out, but I mean, I definitely loved it more than my two older brothers who loved sports, video games. And I really only watched them play video games because I like the graphics. Like, I like the way the <laughs> colors looked. So I think I on the visual art of, like, visual, like, representation of things and, like, mm. color matching things. I love, like, you know, the old, like, 70s or 80s white socks with the, like, different color stripes at the end. Yeah. I'd, like, mix and match them to, like. Oh, mm-hmm. the green stripe one looks really cool with the purple one or whatever. So I've always, I don't know, just drawn to color and, and visual art. And then around 10, I really got into music. I discovered like Metallica and uh, just went down the metal rabbit hole for the next long time. And then that turned into like punk music and experimental stuff and got really into that. And visual art definitely took like a back seat from then on for for a long time and I was definitely trying to be like a professional musician.
2: You were like a proper guitar player before you were a teenager,
1: weren't you? Oh, I could shred, I could shred, yeah. (laughs) 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 I was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we, I was in bands that like toured and stuff. We had records out. I mean, it's not like it was a hobby. It's like all all I did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hobby in that there was no monetary value in it, but... (laughs) Right. <laughs> yeah. You
2: guys were on TV. You were on like Much Music and stuff, yeah, right? Was, totally. was that while you were in high school?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We played the Much Environment in, uh, in high school. Yeah. Interviewed by Suki Lee on, um, oh, what was the name of the punk show? Uh, the Wedge? I think it was The Wedge. Maybe. Was- yeah, I, don't
2: I didn't watch the punk show. I was like watching stuff that is too embarrassing to mention, but <laughs> I loved Much Music as a kid. So I remember. <laughs> what was that like when, when you were going to school? Because you guys were blowing up.
1: Yeah, it was weird. I mean, every summer vacation or summer holiday off of school was spent like touring. It'd be like three months in a van driving around America or Europe. It was kind of, it's hard to describe. It was like cool, but it was also, there was something weird about it in that like, I don't think we were very good at garnering the support of our peers. Like we consider Mm. ourselves more outcasts than we probably were, if that makes any sense. Like, I think yeah. if we had been a little more friendly and open to, like, other people in our school, that we'd that we'd actually be kind of, like, superstars in that school. But we right. were we, probably from other people's perspective. We looked like snobs that were on much music, so we didn't want to talk to anybody. But in our heads, it was probably more, like, a result of just, like, a lot of bullying before that. And so it was yeah. sort of more, like you know leave us alone we don't belong in the school thing so Mm. it's not like there was like parties in the in the high school hallways where it was high-fiving us and like oh it wasn't like she's all that it was not she's (laughs) all that i didn't take my glasses off and was suddenly (laughs) 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 i do even remember this one time during the the much music interview one of the questions was about our high school and we kind of like shit on it a little bit not in any way that we was super intentional just kind of i, I don't even remember what was said some one of us said something about how it was like you know there's a lot of people that were pretty mean to us in school and i remember specifically coming back and walking through the halls of the high school and someone was like was like i can't believe you were dissing our school on tv oh my god so there, it was sort of weird it wasn't like yeah wasn't probably what you'd imagine if you thought about like being pseudo famous in high school
2: do you think that has anything to do with Canadian culture? Because I've only been back for a year and a lot of that tall poppy syndrome conversation comes up about Canada and about people not necessarily embracing those who are super
1: ambitious. Oh, true. It's so true. I, I'm not sure. I totally agree that it's a Canadian thing. It To me, it really feels like a Vancouver thing. Vancouver okay. has this kind of like... yeah salty seaside town vibe where like i mean i love it and you know it's my home forever i'll be buried there i'll you know i'll, I'll go back but yeah. there is this kind of like you know that scene in the american werewolf in london when he when like they're first looking for the werewolf and they're like they're going around like small town i think they're in scotland and they like go into this tiny bar like this little pub Scottish pub and like everyone like stops and stares at them and they're all like playing darts and smoking and they're like who the hell are you that's what Vancouver kind of feels like yeah there is this kind of like and and I get why it's I think a lot of it has to do with like a lack of resources like it's not an abundance of resources so everyone's eager to share like oh I found the coolest new bar it's kind of like I found this bar. There's only one of them. I need to protect it, kind of. Yeah, I, I get. It. I was. I was like that. I mean, I'm fully guilty of of having that that vibe around me in in Vancouver. I think I didn't even know it, but I. But looking back, I think I probably did. But yeah, it kind of also turns into this like, if you're trying too hard, it's like a little corny or something. It's right, corny to be ambitious or uh, sort of. It's a. Uh, it's weird, it, and I've never been able to uh, fit in perfectly because of that. Or yeah. hide my ambition. I mean, I think a lot of the music we were making could have turned out differently, but we were almost like trying to fail in a weird subconscious way mm. because then it would still be cool. I don't know. It's like it's a whole that's interesting, very strange. Yeah,
2: yeah. I was reading an article about this girl I know in the Vancouver Sun recently, and they were talking about how she, you know, she mentioned she is currently running four companies, and it was like. I'm running for a company," she says, without even a hint of bragging. And the whole article was about how the most impressive thing about her is she's not taking excessive pride in what she's doing. And it was just like so strange.
1: It felt really yeah. Why, what is that about? Why? What? What's, I don't know. What's the problem with taking pride in like in your life and like what you're trying yeah. to do, like, the way you're trying to express yourself creatively, or the job you have, or how you know I, it's. It's very, it's very strange. I, I yeah, I might get it. Yeah,
2: I kind of want to contribute to the to the back push against that because I feel like you know part of it is Canadians not wanting to be too American.
1: Yeah, exactly. That but is part of it.
2: I think in that focus, we're kind of missing opportunities to develop our own culture and not care about who we're like or any of that because we're just doing our own thing and we don't care.
1: Exactly. That's the funny thing about Canadian identity is that it's not that clear on what. Canada is, except that it's definitely not America. That's like the that's like the identity of Canada. Like, I'm not sure what we are, but we're definitely not those other guys. <laughs> we I argue did. this in a social studies paper
2: in like the eleventh grade, and my teacher <laughs> like gave me a bad mark because he disagreed with me. And I was like, this sucks. Like, <laughs> come on, man. He was like, hockey, man. Hockey's our identity. I was like, oh, I enough. need to move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you did music from like 11, 12 until what
1: age? Yeah, good question. So it kind of fizzled out, I guess. So um, (laughs) it's not like there was a day I was like, okay, I'm done. Well, pretty close, actually. But um, (laughs) it was already doing quite poorly by then. But I mean, to go back to relate it to what we were just talking about, I mean, I got really down the rabbit hole of like obscure, esoteric type of music probably because a little bit of that Vancouver vibe, right? Like, Mm. it's almost like a a form of self-protection where like, if you don't look like you're trying that hard, then if someone doesn't like it, well, you didn't, you weren't trying that hard. You didn't didn't fail. Yeah. You, You didn't really fail that hard. So I think like by the time I was maybe in my mid twenties, I was Making music that virtually no one could could enjoy—probably intentional. I mean, I, you know, I, I, got, I just got into really experimental stuff. I got into noise stuff and sound collage, and I wanted to make music that had never been heard before. I mean, you, you know, mm. it's both—it's equally ambitious and not ambitious at all. It's, it's kind of a weird. It's hard to describe.
2: You weren't trying to relate at that point. I wasn't trying
1: to relate at all. It was definitely my own thing, my own world. I was in. I knew what I liked from some of the experimental stuff i was into and i was trying to like push those boundaries and listening back it's like pretty wild stuff yeah and then it just kind of turned into casually playing in bands from there a few of my friends bands i would like just just for fun just like something to do yeah
2: Yeah. was that all in vancouver
1: yeah totally cool and then probably stopped completely around i don't know i'd guess like 30 okay Probably like the last show I ever played. If I I don't even know what it is, but I'm sure I was maybe 28, 30, something like that.
2: And did you leap directly from music back into art, or did you have did you ever have a job job?
1: <laughs> uh, I did once. I was going through a real existential moment where I was realizing that music wasn't gonna do anything. From that experimental point of making music, I actually started to try. I I got more into like mainstream rap personally so I I started getting into more mainstream music and realizing that I've been kind of a fool for writing off pop culture so hard mm. so I definitely got into to more mainstream stuff and I started producing stuff and doing like remixes uh, and I thought maybe I could kind of spring back into cuz I was good at like at the actual sonic even though the music I was making was super experimental, it still was like mixed well. It had like a balance, you know, I knew how to make it yeah. sound good. I, I'm like, a am an okay producer. Spent like since I was 12 in the studio. So I, I kind of get how it works. So I was like, oh, maybe I can do some, you know, some remixes and stuff. I did that for a while. And yeah, right around then, I sort of started to have a real existential slip and not realize. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I'm turning 30 and I don't know what I'm doing. This, like, music thing is obviously not work. I spent about 20 years on this. and uh, So I did get a job as a graphic designer and at a firm. So all this whole time, I'm also making music in my 20s. I'm also doing graphic design to pay the bill. Just freelancing? Yeah, freelancing for, like, yeah. basically other musicians. Okay. So whenever any of my bands would, you know, put out a record, I have a T-shirt or make a website. I would be the one that would do it just because I loved doing visual art. And then other people would see that and be, oh, I love your album cover. And then I kind of accidentally had this whole graphic design career of like other bands and like-minded kind of musicians contacting me to do their stuff. And maybe not just only music, but I I did some kind of random freelance stuff, like a construction company or whatever.
2: But this was the first time that you like had a boss.
1: Yeah, I had a desk job. I had like a cubicle desk job. Yeah, it was... Uh, I lasted nine months until I swear to God, I threw up at my desk from the from the stress of it and quit on the spot. No! I could not do, I could not do it. I am not wired that way. I saw the project manager, which I didn't even know what that was for the first nine months I worked there. <laughs> I saw her coming over and like, she was just so mean. And I guess she was mean. It's just that like our form of communication was so we just did not know how to talk to each other and the only time she'd ever come over is for like a pushback from a client on something I needed to do like make the logo bigger some bullshit not like even like creative things you know and I saw her come over, and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw up." And I ran to the bathroom, and then I came back. I was like, "I gotta, I this is not for me. I gotta quit."
2: That's amazing. <laughs> well, if barfing at work doesn't push you into
1: like really exploring your creativity, I don't know what would. <laughs> and, like the next day, I gotta. Art studio and like was like okay I think this is what I, this is what I need to do I mean I was painting yeah. all along I just wasn't taking it very seriously but
2: and it was bad for your health
1: yeah exactly <laughs> so when I quit that job I I really buckled down on painting that's when I like really started to I quit all the bands I quit my job and I I got an art studio at the Waldorf Hotel and I uh, and I started painting
2: and what did that early work look like and how do you feel about that now
1: um. I like it. I'm I was ha- I'm happy with it actually. I, you can tell it's like where, I mean every artist goes through that period where they're sort of um you know trying things. You know, obviously it wasn't going to be first painting wasn't going to be a masterpiece, but yeah. I like looking back on the work of of artists that I respect and to see how they got there. It's interesting to see that journey. Like I can see it doesn't it doesn't look like the work now, but it doesn't not look like it either, you know? Mm, yeah where it was going for sure yeah it was definitely pruder I was like really into kind of abstract expressionism at the time the work before that was like a lot of like sort of mark making and scribbles so it had that but I started to think like oh what if I took these marks and I tried to turn them into the human form like if it was representational Mm. so the first works in the at the Waldorf were were those they were sort of like reclining nudes right in this like really kind of scribbly style that I I mean yeah I'm, I think they look pretty cool actually
2: do you think that putting yourself out there creatively at such a young age made you a bit more resilient to like the inevitability of the fumbling process that's required to develop a personal style Probably.
1: yeah I mean I, I don't know I can't speak to what it would be like to be someone else but I can only imagine that like I remember getting my first bad review for like our our first album when I was like 14 or whatever and yeah it it broke my heart I mean I could not even believe someone could say something like that I was such a sensitive kid but then two days later you get over it you laugh about it with your friends and you are like oh okay I guess this is just part of it right like it toughens you up you're not making music for everybody not everybody's gonna get it and not everybody's gonna think it's good like art is so subjective of course some people are gonna think it sucks
2: yeah (laughs) Totally. I was a telemarketer for one summer when I was 16. And I feel like it completely stripped me of caring when people
1: think I suck. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that would do it. If
2: anything would do it, that would be it. I was like, do you want to buy this vacation rental in Mexico? And they're like, go to hell. <laughs> yeah.
1: you're like, okay, I'll on to the next one.
2: (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It kind of makes you more weirdly comfortable in your own skin, I think. Oh, the thick
1: skin is good to have, I think. Um, Yeah. My uh, girlfriend is a server and she said the same thing about like, that's how she sort of like learned to to develop that thick skin. It's just like some, just any customer service job. I don't know how you, I've never had, oh, I did. I worked in, uh, I worked at Sam the Record Man when I was like 19 or 17 or something like that. Yeah. But that's an easy customer service job. It's like, you're just selling bare naked ladies CDs to people. It's like so easy. Yeah. No one, it's such a clean transaction. It's not like anything surprising. They bring it to you. You know, it's not the same as bringing someone food or yeah. trying to sell someone a vacation package on the yeah. phone. <laughs> Slightly different. So you
2: started in Vancouver and then you went to New York next, right? I did.
1: I, uh, right around once the art thing was doing pretty well. I had a gallery show in New York. I'm really one of those people who has a hard time making choices until an opportunity presents itself in order to make that choice. Mm. I'm not really a like, oh, I'll just go on vacation kind of person. It's more like I'll wait until somebody else invites me or like there's something I really wanted to see or there's an in like, oh, my friend owns this place in Palm Springs like oh okay I'll go
2: you'll wait until you're barfing at your desk before you start your (laughs) career
1: I'm not very proactive with that kind of (laughs) stuff so it took me getting a show in New York to realize I should move there so I was Mm. like I'll go to New York to work on the show that I have coming up in a year I'll spend the year working on the show there that Mm. way it'll be more of a reflection of like my my psyche while I'm in New York and Also, it'll just be easy. I mean, we can schedule like studio visits with potential clients from the gallery who are in Mm. New York. So I just decided to try it out. But the only problem was that we filed for my 01. That's like the artist visa. Yeah, We filed for my 01 in kind of a weird way where it was based on the show, not on like multiple shows. And so when the show was over, the visa was up and I had to come home. (laughs) Oh, damn. Yeah. So I was only there for a year before. And then I kind of realized I had to like, I legally, I had to leave. Which year was that? Um, 2015, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. And then I came home and I was, and I filed for another 01, which took a lot longer because right around then was when uh, Trump got elected. So everything got all messed up and with that kind of stuff right and uh so it took a long time to get the next one and the uh, plan was to go back to New York but I don't know I think I just stayed I was stuck in Vancouver waiting for my 01 to go through and I just started thinking about like weather I started thinking about my time in New York I started thinking about like did I it's not, like New York was so enchanting to me when I was there I was like yeah absolutely in love but it was almost like this it was almost it's almost like a like a fiery relationship or something where like when you are when you've taken a break from it you're like whoa can I do that again
2: you're <laughs> you like know? that was a little abusive now that I think about yeah, it exactly.
1: yeah and so I just like kind of the idea of LA started to creep in I knew it was cheaper I could get more space I'm a west coast guy you know there's something about the pacific ocean that just grounds me or something totally feels closer to home so if, you know family if I need to go up there for any sort of reason it's like a $200 flight that's three and a half hours instead of like six or seven hours from New York whatever it
2: is. Right.
1: And LA was really having like a moment at that time I think too like in 2016-17.
2: Didn't freeze start right around then or later? Um,
1: I think maybe like 2020 maybe the first or maybe 2020. I think it's only been two actually. I think okay this was supposed to be the third one right now actually. Gotcha. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The whole world before COVID has been condensed in my brain. And I'm exactly. like, did that happen two years ago or 17 years ago? I know.
1: I know. I feel you. Um, But <laughs> I mean, to your point, like freeze wouldn't have happened here, even though that was a little bit later. That's a sign of like what was happening in LA. You know what I mean? You, I mm-hmm. think a lot of New Yorkers were getting outpriced from New York. Yeah. I think a lot of people from around the world were like, actually, maybe LA is the next place for artists to hang out. We can all get like, you can get like yards here and stuff, you know?
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> awesome. Fair enough. It's a it's a lot more conducive to a healthy
1: mentally to like a healthy lifestyle. I think so. Yeah, you don't have to battle so hard as New York. I love New York. I don't wanna I'm not trying to trash talk it. There's something about that battle that's very invigorating and I and I love it. And I and I love visiting. Ultimately, I just don't think I could handle it. I mean, I'm I'm willing to admit that it's not New York, it's me. I, I don't think I could do it. I think I'm just like a little too West Coast. I was mm. just a little too like, whoa! Can we just take a little deep breath, you guys? Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know no, what? totally. I think I was only able to stay there as long. I was there for seven years, and I think I was only able to stay there as long as I did because I left so much and came back. Right. And then you get there, and you're basically on a treadmill the entire time you're there. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's great when you are in a place in your life where you want to plug into that energy. But I feel like if if that's not where your head's at, it would run you ragged
1: yeah exactly yeah i was i didn't leave in the year that i was there so yeah it was pretty overwhelming and, like i remember just uh one of the first days there i i was just getting like a falafel or a pizza or something i don't, I don't remember like there was like a little bit of a lineup maybe three or four people when i got to the front of the line i was like hey how's it going which is like you just can't do that they were like what <laughs> i was like i was like huh They're, like what do you want and, like, oh oh uh, pepperoni you like yeah and they just like don't say it, it was just, like can't you like right 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 time is just so precious there you know what I mean like I get totally. it. everyone's in a rush so that, you know they don't have no time to ask out yeah to answer how they're doing
2: <laughs> <laughs> my friend Nick Haramas was on the podcast and he is the editor-in-chief of interview magazine and he was talking about how he's Canadian and he was talking about how he has maintained his may I in spite of all the odds. And that's how he starts <laughs> questions. And he's like, people don't know how to take it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the may I, it, Yeah, that would come out of left field for sure. There, <laughs> Totally.
2: So you, uh, so then you moved to LA. Yeah,
1: I uh, got my visa, moved to LA, uh, met my girlfriend in Vancouver in that time, in that weird at time when I was trying to get to LA. So she ended up coming down with me and we've been here for nice. some so That was maybe, I guess it was like three years ago. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm loving it. I mean, I just don't have any plans of going anywhere else at this point. This feel it really feels like home. I it it, like I think just my personality with LA's personality just it just meshed. It was like a was a match made in heaven. I think. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I really I really love it here. I mean, there's weird things about it. There's like it's so spread out. There's no real city to it, which I thought I would really have a hard time adjusting to. And I do, I do. I like. I get it and another thing is that I've, I've i've been coming down here for so long that's another thing that it feels so comfortable for me because touring bands from vancouver i mean we come straight to san francisco right. and so i've been coming here for you know 20 years every year so it's not like it felt like alienating or anything to me but yeah the the whole aesthetic of it like how there's no city you know i i get that it, that's weird it's like the whole feel of la is like if People took over the suburbs or something, you know. (laughs) Like the galleries are in like mini malls, and like you can go to like a Michelin three star restaurant that's like beside like a pet cetera or something. Is really weird, and that takes some getting used to. But if you kind of turn your expectations around in your head, or like try to just view that as like actually really interesting and cool, Mm. kind of hokey and dumb, which you could see it as both, I guess. Yeah. But if you kind of think like oh this was never really a city it's this funny hollywood like make-believe town and then like all these kind of cool interesting people came in and like took it over and like reinvented it and turned a mini mall into like a cool place to be like that's kind of interesting you know yeah it's kind of like modern project in itself you know
2: there's like a glorification of the outsider in that that's
1: interesting totally yeah, LA is huge for that. I mean, there is no insider in LA. I'm, I'm realizing. Every there's no like. Well, outside of celebrity culture. It's well, yeah. That okay, yeah, that's true. Uh, but I mean, historically, it's such like a cowboy wanderer city. You know what I mean? Like, people come here to like reinvent themselves. They come here when they're yeah. lost, or they just hike and they end up here. Uh, it's kind of, an, is there's something nomadic about it? Which is kind of, it's kind of fun. I don't know. I'm, I'm liking the energy. Awesome. What's your studio like there? It's gorgeous. I love it. It's uh it, it's in downtown LA. It's like the second floor of this essentially abandoned building. That's another thing that happens in LA that is not going to happen in New York oh or Vancouver gosh. where Can you imagine? Where square foot is so precious. People I think forget that they own buildings here. <laughs> it seems like I don't think the building owner even remembers he owns this building, but i am in that my studio is in. And it's right downtown. I mean, it's got, I can't even imagine how much it would be worth, that land would be worth. But there's a whole abandoned floor in the building. It's just yeah. like a dusty, it looks like a metal music video up there. It's a—it's amazing. It's weird. It's spacious. It's huge. I it got beautiful, big, beautiful windows. I, I love it so much. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah.
2: Can you tell me a bit about your process with acrylic paint and oil pastels?
1: Yeah. I think I I always wanted to try to achieve this kind of line quality, almost like old old like Warner Brothers cartoons, where mm. the backgrounds would be these like light drawn lines on top of a dark background. And I was I've always been kind of obsessed with that. I think Basquiat kind of did it, you know. He, and I realized that what he used was oil sticks. So I got into those like a way to kind of illustrate on top of a painting is what I've always been trying to do. Right. And so I developed the way I do it is I take this acrylic paint that's mixed with quite thin. So it's almost, it's like the consistency of house paint. So like, it's kind of watery, well, not watery, but just thinner. And I paint with that, with the canvas on the ground, so that it dries really flat. So there's like very little brush mark. It's almost like a silk screen or something. And then I'll take uh, my oil sticks or oil pastels, once that paint is dry and uh, just kind of draw on top of it. It's kind of like a two-part like paint and then illustration kind of process
2: i've heard that you uh you use your paintings as their own palettes and you're not particularly precious about that part of the work right
1: so i don't traditionally like mix the colors on something else and then put it on a canvas since the canvas is already flat down on the ground right it is a palette so you know just squirt a couple of colors on there and mix it as you need it and then the where you mix the color is where the color goes you know what I mean I mix it on the canvas yeah
2: yeah well it's very punk
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I, mean, I never shook that completely for sure even though I I shed it a bit and started being more interested in, in like mainstream pop culture I definitely there's something ju- I, I can't escape just wanting to be like irreverent kind of across the board like I I just I just like shaking it up, I guess, a bit, you know? Fair
2: enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have an interest in uh, Renaissance art or Flemish still lives, all of that, when you were younger? or
1: Not really, to be honest. I Not in a, any kind of academic sense. I mean, I always thought that aesthetic was very beautiful. I'm more interested in seeing those works from like a pop culture perspective. I want to know what they mean to people today. Like, not any one painting, but just like, what does a renaissance painting represent now and how is it used like to me i think of like an old you know drawing room in an old mansion with like chamber music playing um you know it's got this like it's got this connotation around it it's almost like a cultural prop and i'm interested in exploring what that means which also asks the question like what does art mean as a cultural prop too so that i mean that's ultimately what i'm kind of getting at like do people like art because of the art or do they like it because of what it tells what it tells the world about you mm. because you're a collector or uh I'm just interested in in that you know I'm interested in the consumer part of of uh, of the art world and I'm interested in what paintings mean to people
2: well and that that whole time frame was really interesting because that to my knowledge is kind of when a hierarchy and subject matter evolved that equated to price tags
1: right right
2: where like mythological or religious works were at the top of the food chain still lives were at the bottom and then in between there were like genre paintings and portraits and artists would kind of fall into this categorization of high art to low art based on their
1: subject matter I didn't know that it just goes to show that like I think a lot of people or some people might criticize today's art world for having formulas in place like that. Like the fact that some of my canvases are more because of the size. So technically Mm. it's very interesting, but then they'll think, you know, Rubens was some kind of more, pure version of art but I think it's I personally think it's been the same I don't think Rembrandt painted his paintings right I mean people criticize Jeff Koons for like you know who doesn't even make his own work I mean I think half the work you're looking at in museums weren't painted by the person that they. it it was like studio of a lot of the the time yeah and you could pay different amounts for like if you wanted him to like paint like one figure in there like the background then you cost this much you want to do the whole thing it was the premium amount so when Warhol comes up with like the factory, quote unquote, I mean, that's been happening for a lot longer than the eighty than the nineteen eighties, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of spin there. Yeah.
1: I'm interested in like sort of breaking down the pretension around art, you know? And like, mm-hmm. I'm not crapping on art. I mean, obviously I love it. It's one of the most beautiful driving forces of mankind. i I've been drawn to it as a kid. It's it's like it's everything to me. But there's also this like business side of it that I think is at least like kind of funny (laughs) and I'm I'm, yeah, like trying to like expose a little bit poke fun at at it a little bit and and just yeah break down the potential try to break down the mystery of of the art world and make it feel like a little more approachable I like to try to make work that quote-unquote regular people you know people who maybe don't have a Mm. extensive background in art history would enjoy you know yeah but I also want it to have Multi layers where people who do have a background in art or cultural studies could enjoy it on another level or like through a different lens
2: well on that note i want to talk about some of the titles of your shows (laughs) uh Uh, like expensive things one expensive things two how much they cost and my personal favorite which i've written down we open on andy dixon vain egotistical materialistic and original sitting in a hollywood restaurant
1: (laughs) (laughs) that is um that's a quote it's a it's a changed quote of uh from charlie kaufman from the movie adaptation okay yeah so I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fan I I think um my work deals with a similar kind of like meta art that he deals with I mean adaptation was an entire movie about the making of that movie and you're literally watching it in real time Mm -hmm. and that was a show that like referenced myself more than any other and I just moved to LA so it just seemed like it just seemed like the right right one. It had two self-portraits. There's only five paintings and two of them were (laughs) self-portraits.
2: Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you saw the, the recent Netflix documentary on Fran Lebowitz, but she talks about this bizarre public fascination on the price tags associated with specific works. And she notes that during an auction... The work comes out nobody claps the painting is sold for like 17 million the hammer comes down and everybody claps but they're clapping at the spend yeah. not the painting yeah. you're clearly exploring the psychology around value and desire and luxury yeah. and art's relationship with money what is your perspective on that like inescapable marriage between the two
1: i'm certainly not trying to offer any answers you know i mean i The work asks questions and and makes jokes. It's not an essay on how we get through this. I'm interested just in exploring the comedy of it, really. Like I guess the paradox of it that work, artwork is like soul changing and also has to have a price tag. Is just yeah, it's just really funny, funny to me. And it has to. I'm not saying it shouldn't. Like I yeah, it has to. And Christie's has to exist. That's what bolsters the art market up, and that's how you know how much an artist is worth I get it all and I'm not even against it It, but it is funny
2: and it is also how artists eat which is important
1: I need to sell work if I could make it and give it away and we lived in some weird futuristic society where all my needs were met then maybe I would just give it away but I want uh, a new pair of shoes you know (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I need to pay my rent you know I got a one-bedroom apartment in LA it's not gonna pay for itself. So yeah we we live in that world. We live in capitalism. I was born and raised in capitalism. There's nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. And I want to be as creative as possible and survive. So so here we are.
2: Yeah I like that you don't seem to be either deifying
1: or vilifying luxury. Totally because if I was if I was vilifying it, I would be a hypocrite because I'm essentially making a luxury object every time I paint because the work sells for more than I can afford. Yeah. So who would I be if I was trying to be like, ooh, screw your kind of... <laughs> screw like, the man. Yeah. and I'm like, Or like, screw you trying to spend money on a very well-made art object. It's like, well, wait, aren't I making a very well-made art object and trying to sell it to you? Yeah. Like, uh, it would be ridiculous for me to, to vilify. And I find when modern artists do that, it kind of kind of reeks <laughs> you know what I mean it, it totally feels really wooden and then reifying it I'm also not doing that because it's like it is what it is and sometimes designer stuff is tacky and sometimes it's super cool sometimes it's like a uh, the expression I mean I love Alessandro Michelle I love what he's mm, doing me too I think he's like a a real artist I love Tom Brown is is amazing yeah. so like these people are very creative they're artists totally. and, like,
2: and craft is important and paying for it shouldn't be scoffed at the
1: ultimate right now is like fast fashion you're like yeah if, and then you're just contributing to a lot of waste in the world and that stuff is made in like terrible conditions so i guess maybe you go to you thrift thrift is a good thing but yeah um, it's hard to know what's right you know i mean i just got uh an electric car and then i read this article about how bad it is for like how to make the batteries and i'm just like Fuck you can't man. win <laughs> like, what am i supposed to do <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then you're scrolling through Instagram and you see Alessandro like knitting and crocheting and quarantine. And you're like, oh, maybe I should buy something from Gucci.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just dropped $5, on a $5,000 on a pair <laughs> of pants.
2: <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> I thought this concept was so interesting that I was reading in your bio. Paintings of expensive things are themselves expensive things collected by the wealthy to promote the luxury lifestyle. What was your relationship and your Interest in money and luxury growing up was that something that just kind of came when you started exploring the art market, or how did that come about? No,
1: I mean I think that comes from I think my whole life has probably always been this juxtaposition, this paradox because I grew up in like um I don't know I guess a um, middle class sometimes sometimes lower sometimes higher depending on how my yeah. business was doing I guess. We like we were okay, my and my two older brothers were like really into kind of like rap culture and at the time in the nineties, I think things have kind of piled on top of each other and all mixed together now, which is awesome in this post internet world but at the time in the nineties even early eighties, you kind of had to choose were you like a were you like an n w a NWA fan who wore right. like the eight ball jacket and the and like spent money on clothes, or were you me who was kind of like anti-capitalist like I'll just wear sweatpants and like a jean jacket and listen to metal and get into like political punk stuff all the while still being in the suburbs with my brothers and uh, you know my dad driving like a decent car and stuff so I lived in this paradox my whole life mm. and I see both sides I wasn't like oh like screw the rest of my family like I got there I got that perspective I got one my brother liked nice things yeah and maybe secretly I like them too in some way but i didn't want to be capitalist or something it's a you know it kind of comes back to that whole like how, how do you know what to do what's right i don't know buying an electric car right or is the battery bad I, I don't know and then growing up in the punk scene and it's like this very like fear of selling out thing in the 90s it was like don't make money off what you do because then it's not authentic anymore sort of thing so kind of the intersection of art and money has always been something in the forefront of like, no matter what I've done.
2: Mm. When there is that focus, where does the concept of soul fit in to the to the work?
1: Good question. I mean, I think soul is in there, whether it's sold for an um, amount of money or not. Like, that's the one thing I've learned along the way is that like, I can still put my heart and soul into work and it can still be appreciated by like a lot of people rather than like an esoteric small amount of people. And it can still look pretty. I think something I maybe misinterpreted in my 20s was that like hard to enjoy equals more depth.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: So you'd almost like make things harder to, you make them uglier, like anti-aesthetic in order to have people be like, "Oh, I don't like this," and you're like, "Yeah, that's because it's awesome, and you don't get it." Right? You know what I mean? It's like this trick to try to make it look like it has more to it, but really, it's more uh, something you're doing. I think out of fear of like really putting yourself out there. I think in hindsight, of like my anti-pop, anti-capitalist background, looking looking back, I was afraid, and people like Bieber or something. That, you know how much guts it takes to be like, I want to be like a pop star, the biggest pop star in the world. Like, yeah. I want millions and millions of people to know me and talk shit about me and like throw stuff at me. Like I can't go out and try a skateboard trick without it being filmed and everyone making fun of my like my one attempt at a heel flip or whatever. Like that takes so much courage, in my opinion.
2: Especially if you're Canadian.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially when you're brought up Canadian. And so... I think what I was doing by like trying to obscure music and making it a bit harder to, to enjoy and making it harder to see the shows, or it feels a bit like cowardly to me in, in mm. hindsight. I mean, I'm proud of a lot of the work I've done. I'm not trying to be like everything I've done before this is bullshit, but I wish that I had had the courage to be like, I want to make things people like yeah. and, and it can still have soul when i if i do that. Yeah. In fact, it could probably have more soul because i'm not trying to rely on this like esoteric obscurity thing like faux soul. Yeah. You know what i mean?
2: Yeah, you're starting a bigger conversation when you're trying exactly. to communicate.
1: I, exactly. That's exactly it. I I think i was afraid to be in the biggest conversation. Yeah having little side conversations with my like ten friends over here and making fun of the big conversation, being like, "Oh, that whole thing is bullshit." Like, and no, it's not. I, I can't, I can't write Wrecking Ball. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's all yeah. a masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's absurd to think that that's like lower art. It's or
2: or people call Shakespeare like a cliche, but it's all a cliche because it's so freaking amazing that we have all read it and focused on it as you know, as a culture, however long later
1: yeah exactly
2: yeah How would you describe your your database of influences now? What are you most influenced by?
1: um I'm the most influenced, I guess, as far as like artists go. I like the kind of like I still like the shit disturber artists, you know I mean, I like the Richard Princes and the Warhols. I like people who play with culture and copyright and appropriation and and value and you know I, I'm still a prankster at heart I think so uh, I get more out of reading an article about Richard Prince than I do about looking at a uh, David Hockney painting even though I love H- Hockney and like on an aesthetic level obviously I, I love his work and it, and it inspires me but it's not it, it's not what I think about in the studio right I think about concepts more than I think about aesthetics for sure
2: which is an interesting statement because your work is such a specific aesthetic.
1: Yeah, totally. But I think once you find, once that kind of aesthetic, it's almost like the aesthetic runs itself. It's kind of hard mm-hmm. to describe, but you kind of like... You're not thinking about it. I'm not thinking about it. Intentionally anymore. No, it just does it. it just, uh, it's just sort of like the paintings kind of paint themselves now. It's kind of hard to describe, but right. there's sort of like a, a reaction to each color. Like I start... And I'm like, okay, well, his nose is turquoise. So that means the cheek needs to be something that's going to react to the turquoise in a nice way. Okay, so I'll make it, you know, rosy pink.
2: And then you're back to like looking at your socks as a kid and matching the colors next to each other.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking about aesthetics, let's talk about your Versace collaboration, because that seems like such a perfect partnership aesthetically for you. That was spring 2020, right? How did that come about?
1: So they contacted me on Instagram. Uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was the hoax because it wasn't from the Versace Instagram account. It was from like one of the guys that works there.
2: He slid into your DMs.
1: Slid into my DMs. Right up. Yeah, Uh And uh, in the past, I had painted paintings of Versace shirts. Okay. So I think they had, I was on their radar. So they contacted me and said like they're doing this thing for Salone di Mobile, which is like. Yep. Okay. In Milan. And so they wanted to collaborate with me. They were doing their exhibit that year, which I guess was 2019. They were doing their exhibit at uh, Via Gesù, like the actual Versace. I don't don't even know if you call it mansion. It's not the mansion in Miami. It's like his house. And it's kind of like the factory. A lot of the stuff was made there. It's right in the middle of Milan in the fashion area there. Um, And they did their exhibit in the house instead of like at a tent you know on the grounds of the of the fair so I wanted to work with a few uh, visual artists to like get it looking kind of you know modern and and fun so I went in there and brought some paintings I just happened to be working on a show in New York that was just coming down right when Salone started so I was able to we were able to ship the paintings over there basically restaged the paintings and believe it or not when they first reached out to me I was working on this, like, 12 foot sculpture of a Versace shirt, completely coincidentally. It was the most serendipitous thing. I sent, I was like, You're not even gonna believe what I'm working on right now. And so that showed it in New York and then was shipped to Via Jesu and, like, hung in the archway open, at, like, the foyer of, of it, which was completely amazing.
2: You manifested it.
1: I, I mean, that, that one really did feel like I just made that happen for sure. And then from there, I met some of the actual clothing designers. I was working more with the furniture people because that's like what the Salone exhibit was. But through just some dinners and stuff, I met some of the designers and then they suggested we do like a collab. We worked together for like a year on it and it walked the runway for the spring 2020 show.
2: Was that just such a trip? It was
1: surreal. I still can't believe it happened. I mean, they took like one of the drawings of a car that I did and like turned it into like the centerpiece of the runway it was like this giant model car that was like my drawing it was like spinning and filled with flowers you know I met Donatello we went to the after party I went I went to Milan like four times that year I went to the runway show bef- before that one and it was like finding myself in like you know the same room as kendall jenner it was like yeah very bizarre it was a very bizarre quick it happened so quick and i still am processing it <laughs> yeah and then, and then it came out in stores like um you know spring 2020 right like literally right when COVID hit actually the last thing i did before lockdown which is march 13th here in la was go to the versace store and pick up all the stuff because in my contract one of the things i got was one of everything oh and so i got to do this like pretty woman style shopping spree in Versace. It was the very last, the next day, the city was closed. It was the last thing I did.
2: That is like the most incredible memory from what life used to be like.
1: hmm Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess I, I peaked. <laughs> right? The <laughs> like guy was basically like, just take anything you want. It was like a very, like, it was pretty, pretty surreal. The whole thing, they've been so cool. Like such an awesome team of people to work with. I maintained a, a very close friendship with a few of them donatella was cool as fuck i mean she was yeah she's a she's a queen man I, it was really cool to meet her. i got, did a photo shoot with her they've treated me so well flew me out like first class i mean i'd never been treated like that in my life yeah it was absolutely incredible
2: awesome and you worked with moschino too right
1: no so um just like how i was working on that 10 foot versace shirt sculpture before they contacted me i'm interested in appropriation so yes I, okay it, sculptures of all sorts of luxury garments for this show that's opening tomorrow
2: masterpieces
1: yeah so it it has a lot of garment sculptures in it uh there's a mosquito thing there's a vivian westwood thing I, i'm basically making sculptures of of garments where the garment appropriated fine art like art history right there's a mosquito sweatshirt like the hoodie zip up thing that has these kind of like cherub motif all over it so I'm kind of trying to play with this like double appropriation, you know, like putting the designer thing back in the gallery as an, as an art piece, instead of it being like the gift shop, the secondary thing, I'm putting it back into like the original thing. If that makes sense. And just playing with appropriation, like how many more times can I appropriate? Like what? (laughs) I love this idea of like, because I do like the patrons home series too, which is that I paint the interiors of my patrons. So I get to paint my painting twice. And show where it went and honor the sale, you know, in a way. And then I can do a patron's home of that patron's home. It can go on forever. What's that effect called?
2: I can't remember when it's the photo and the photo and the photo. Yeah, yeah. It
1: it was like, I was just watching, like, who wants to be a millionaire or something like that? And it was one of the questions. And it's like from a product, some product was the first thing to do it. I forget, a bottle of something. And they're the first person because the person is holding a picture that has the bottle in it. And then that bottle has the person holding the bottle again. And the, Effect is named after whatever brand that was that did it first. I forget what it is, but anyway. And it kind of comes down to that Kaufman influence. I mean, that's Charlie Kaufman's whole thing. It just it's like a tunnel of of self-references. It just goes on forever.
2: I don't fully understand what meta is whenever people say that, but I feel like that
1: has a place in all of this. It's definitely meta. So the, <laughs> I think the, the common I'm not an academic, but the common misconception is that Meta means something in another thing. That's what always people say. It's like a little, it's like a story within a story, but that's not true. Meta is when the art form is aware of itself. Mm. So in metafiction, it'll be like the characters of the book suddenly realize that they're characters in a book. Got it. Yeah, that's essentially what meta means. So Adaptation was the ultimate meta movie because it's like a movie about Charlie Kaufman getting the assignment for a movie he's trying to write the movie. And that is the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I just love it.
2: (laughs) I need to go watch adaptation. I watched it a million years ago. I need to go rewatch it as soon as I get (laughs) off. (laughs) So with, within all of this, what kind of conversations now that you're a part of this great conversation, are you hoping that your art ignites?
1: I think I like to, I like the conversation to be about pop culture and why why people think it's cheaper or, like, easier. The myth of, like, writing Wrecking Ball is easy. Like, anyone could do it, and it's way more interesting to make a Modest Mouse song or whatever the fuck. Yeah, I, I'm interested in the in almost, like, it's almost like the vilification of pop culture, which I find mm. very strange and personal because I totally used to do it. I'm interested in, like, coming to terms with that within myself. Like, why did I not, like... I mean, why did I not like Britney Spears, which is like a touchy subject now with the whole New York Times thing. So, I mean, but that's a perfect example. Like, I mean, it's easier to dogpile on people than it's so much easier at like a party when you're meeting someone to say you don't like something than you like something. It makes you look so much more interesting. And I hate that.
2: It says a lot about us.
1: It does. Yeah, I hate it. I don't like when I meet somebody and their first thing is to just talk about the things they hate. It takes so much more guts to talk about the things you like.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You have to put yourself out there. Totally. What do you feel like has been your biggest challenge creatively?
1: I mean, the whole thing is a big. Ch- I mean, I mean, ten years of abject poverty. is, is Yeah, a challenge that'll do it. I'm trying to figure out how to survive is a challenge. I guess there's a challenge in like knowing what you want to say, but not knowing how to say it yet. Mm. You know, trying to figure out your vernacular, the language that you want to express yourself in. I had all these ideas. I, I grew up in a certain way. I know what I wanted to say about culture, but I just didn't know how to say it yet. So, yeah. you know, that's a challenge for sure. Just developing the tools and the language.
2: Totally. And based on that, what are you most excited about to explore?
1: I mean, I just want to keep going with what I'm doing, you know? I mean, I think I've opened this door to this relationship with, with art and money. And, and not that I'm the first person to ever do it, but I think I'm taking it to places people haven't done before. And I just want to keep doing that.
2: Awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for oh, taking the you. time to fun. chat with me.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, I better get to the galleries. So.
2: Have a great day. Nice to chat. Yeah. You And that, beautiful people, concludes this episode of The Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow The Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever.